Whenever our Lord wished to do a favor, he always began by asking for one. He did not begin with a reproof, but with a request. Welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. I'm Mike Gomer-Gormley, and I am here to walk you through the essentials of what it means to follow Christ as a Catholic disciple. Let's begin. Last week, we examined the roles of the Pharisees in the teaching and preaching of Jesus. As we continue to do this character study, we need to understand the very heart of our Lord and why he felt it so necessary to not make common cause with the Pharisees, but rather to attack them directly and repeatedly. What was it about the Pharisees that drove Jesus so angry and insane? It was simply this. Their focus on the externals while he wanted to start with the heart. And now we move to just such an occasion where those who were mocked and belittled by the Pharisees, those who were absolutely hated by the Jews in general at the time of Christ, Christ goes in John chapter four to meet them. That is the people of Samaria, especially in the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. For this week, I want to spend a little bit of time where Jesus actually converts not just a woman, but an entire town. Now, this is the town of Samaria in and around Mount Gerizim, which is one of the holy mountains of the Samaritan people. Basically, if you don't remember the story, Israel refers to a lot of things. It refers to the man, uh, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. It refers to the nation at the foot of Mount Sinai, the Israelite people. It refers to the kingdom of united Israel only under David and Solomon. And then after Solomon's son, uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam in the north and south split the kingdoms in half, the 10 northern tribes were known as the kingdom of Israel and the one southern tribe, well, two, Benjamin and Judah, were known as the kingdom of Judah or of the Jews. And it's interesting because for many of us, we don't really know this distinction about Israel. So when the tri- when you have prophets in the north that are speaking to the northern tribes, often it will talk about Israel or it will reference Ephraim, which is the biggest tribe, biggest land area up north, as kind of like a, a kind of like a placeholder for the entire northern tribe or a northern kingdom. And so you have this language where the prophets are speaking to Ephraim and to Judah, and that means to the whole northern kingdom and southern kingdom. The prophet Ezekiel talks about God commanding the prophet to break a stick in half. That's showing the rebellion and the separation of the two kingdoms from the one covenant people and then putting the staff together. That shows that God with his Messiah will reunite everyone. So this is the important Old Testament backdrop. Now, after the time of the Maccabees, you might not know this, but every single time the Samaritans, about 100 to 300 years before the coming of Christ and before the Maccabean revolt and all this stuff, every time an enemy came up against the kingdom of Judah down south, the Samaritans up north always allied with the people fighting the Jews, always. And so the Jews and Samaritans bitterly hated each other. And at the time of the Maccabees, the Maccabean revolt, first and second Maccabees, John Hyrcanus, who was prince over the people of Israel, he would end up, him and his sons, not only destroyed all the Samaritan fortress towns and garrisons and 
just wiped out their armies, but then salted the fields of all the farms around the fortresses and garrisons. So there was a lot of deep bitterness. So at the time of Christ, you have Samaritans and Jews who had nothing to do with each other. They hated each other. The Jews had actually started to recolonize the North known as Galilee of the Gentiles. So people like in Nazareth and in Capernaum, all along the sea, Magdala, all of those Jews come from houses down South that migrated up North around Samaria. In fact, the Jews would rather enter into a place called Perea, which was on the Eastern side of the uh, Jordan River, they would rather cross over the Jordan River, go up in Perea, and then cross back over so that the dirt from their feet would never touch Samaritan soil. In fact, Samaritans were so hated by the Jews that it was a curse word to call a Jew a Samaritan, which in fact, people said to our Lord, what are you, a Samaritan, right? So the understanding of this, the framework that surrounds this is important for us to understand what Jesus is doing when he talks to the woman of Samaria. Now, what else do we know about her in particular? She lived near Mount Gerizim, which is a famous mountain in the Old Testament. Um, the Samaritan people had the first five books of Moses as their scriptures, but they themselves were not pure Israelites. They didn't just come from Israelite people, the way the Jews maintained their racial purity and bloodlines and uh, through their maternal birth and all that stuff. What they did was they were intermingled with the Assyrians and the other people that the Assyrians had conquered who brought their national gods in and commingled with their gods. In fact, in the book of Hosea, one of my favorite books of the Bible, because I get my nickname Gomer from the prostitute wife of the prophet Hosea. Uh, yeah, my, my nickname is not from my parents. It is from my stupid high school friends and I love it to death. But, um, the prophet when he went to go and get his wife back out of prostitution in chapter three, God unveils this beautiful flowing um, soliloquy that he says of Israel as his bride and how she's going after all these false lovers of false gods. And he basically says, I will remove from your mouths the names of the five bales. When a slave master owned a slave woman, he could compel her to marry him. But she did not call him my husband. She called him my bail or my master. And so another component that you need to understand about the Old Testament uh, feature here in the story of the Samaritan woman at the well is that the patriarchs met their wives at wells, right? The watering hole was very important in desert life. And so people would water their flocks and herds and themselves, and they would draw water for the day's chores. So the well was... Uh, deeply important in their lives. The local watering hole was the thing that separated them from death or life. And so this was a very important area. So it also became very important socially. So when we get into this, there's this prophetic patriarchal religious understanding, not just of Mount Gerizim, but this well in particular. So let's go through the story. Chapter four, verse one. Now, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize only his disciples, that's an interesting note. He left Judea. Jesus did. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So now he's going from the South to the North. Verse four, he had to pass through Samaria. 
He didn't have to. Like many Jews of his time, he could have added a handful of miles to his journey and gone around Samaria, lest the dirt from his feet, right, touch that polluted land. But he didn't because he had a date with a woman at a well. So he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was by his journey, sat down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, so this is already loaded with stuff, almost too much that we can't parse through for just this episode. But we have to understand that Jesus Christ views himself as the word of God that became flesh, that is given for the life and salvation of the world. That is his mission. That is his goal. And so when John the Baptist sees him, he says, behold, the lamb of God. Then he goes out to the wedding feast at Cana and he takes the Jewish mikvah waters, the ritual bathing waters or or washing waters, and he turns that into new wine. That is what Jesus is bringing. If the Old Testament is good, it is like water, then the New Testament is like the greatest wine that could be derived from this water, right? And so Jesus works these signs, these miracles, but people, it's really curious how it ends in chapter two. It said, now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not trust himself to them because he knew all men and needed no one to bear witness of man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's how chapter 2 ends, verses 23 to 25. Now, we stop reading because that's the end of the chapter. But chapter 3, verse 1, I know I've said this on the show before, opens up with, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So it's fascinating that in chapter two, he works the miracle of of turning the water into wine, Jewish ritual cleansing waters, purifying waters into wine. And it's the best wine. And he does it at a marriage feast. And then the signs, though, that people see him and they believe in him, but Jesus would not believe himself to them. Because he knew that they were just there for the signs, but he's not the sign of God. He is the word made flesh. And so it's fascinating that now when the Nicodemus comes to him, he's coming to him referencing the signs. But when he gets the words, Nicodemus remains mostly unconvinced. And then chapter three ends with this interestingness around Jesus and John the Baptist. And it said, the, now a discussion arose between John's disciples and a Jew over purifying. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Here he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, no one can receive anything except what is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now, verse 29 is awesome. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, like the best man, right? who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now full. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so here, John the Baptist receives his testimony. God has set his seal on John the Baptist. And that's why John is okay with his ministry now diminishing. And that is what sets up chapter four. Verse one, now when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making more and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and again departed to Galilee. 
And so he goes through Samaria, and this is where the story deeply unfolds. So you have the signs being worked, people believing in him because of the signs, but Jesus withholding the supernatural gift of faith from them, okay? And he does this because he knows that their hearts are not totally in it. So now, just to make the point even more dramatic, one of the most faithful disciples, John, recording this book, tells the story of an outsider, not just an outsider, not just a Greek, not just a Syrophoenician woman, but a Samaritan, right? This is amplifying the level of conversion, the, the amazingness of this story. Sometimes we lose because we're like, oh yeah, here's Jesus talking to Samaritan woman. You know, it's interesting. Oh, why do you, you know, it seems kind of sexist in this. What's going on? But Jesus had, verse four, had to pass through Samaria. He didn't, but he wanted to in order to keep his date with a woman at the well. So let's go to verse seven. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. One of my favorite lines from Fulton Sheen is that when Jesus goes to uh, do a favor for someone, well, this is what he says. He says, whenever our Lord wished to do a favor, he always began by asking for one. He did not begin with a reproof, but with a request. His first was give. There must always be an emptying of the human before there can be a filling with the divine as the divine emptied himself to fill the human. So here Jesus goes to this woman. He's wearied by his journey. He sits down at the well. It's at noon, and there is a woman alone at noon coming to draw water. Now, again, in a desert climate, in these ancient patriarchal days, women did not go alone to the well waters. You have no idea the type of people who were there at the well. It could be anyone. It could be hired servants of a shepherd. It could be shepherds feeding their flocks. It could be any sort of people there. And so women often never went alone. Now, most women would go at the first hour at sunrise. They would go or at the last hour near sunset because they wanted to go in the cool of the day. And since I just went to the Holy Land, I can tell you, it is kind of hot there. It is kind of hot. And so here Jesus says to the woman at noon, who is alone, all of these things are signposts to us, the careful reader. And he says to her, give me a drink. Now he says this to begin the great story for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now you might miss verse eight and not realize this, but he sent 12 people away to buy food for 13 people. I don't know if you've ever had to buy food for a crowd or a party, but you usually don't send everyone but one person. Usually you send like three or four people, you know, maybe if there's a lot of food, extra hands to carry it, but you don't send everyone but one person or else you all just go to that place where you're getting the food, right? And so what happens here in this story is that Jesus has to send them away so that he can have a legitimate conversation with the Samaritan woman. It would be too scandalous for the disciples to bear, right? And it's evident because when they show up, they bumble and fumble the whole thing. Verse nine, the Samaritan woman said to him, now here's the prejudice. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. So if you're taking notes at all, the first thing you write down, this is the first title that this woman gives to Jesus. It is a Jew, right? Right now she's drawing a harsh distinction between Jews versus Samaritans. And now we have Jesus's masterful response. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him 
and he would have given you living water. Now, I know what happens when we read this. We hear this and we're like, oh my gosh, he's Jesus. He's the son of God. He's offering you living water. That's going to, it's awesome. It's the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. This woman did not come at it from our Christian spiritual lenses. She wasn't hearing a spiritual truth. What she was hearing was a very natural, one could even say sensual or sensible uh, distinction. There is well water, which is good. It's better than nothing. But well water tends to be stagnant. It tends to be not fresh, right? You have well water, and then you have what they called living water. And living water just simply means moving water. Spring water, that's living water. River water, that's living. Mountain streams and waterfalls, that's living water. So the woman said in verse 11, sir. So now he goes from a Jew to sir. Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And now the twist, the the harping back on the Jew versus Samaritan. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? So now the woman is trying to reframe this conversation. Jesus makes a request. She says, how dare you, basically? Why, why would you do that? And then Jesus says this mysterious phrase, if you knew the gift of God, he would have given you living water. Really, you would have given me living water? Well, how about this, Jew? Our common patriarch, Jacob, good old Saint Jacob, right? Our father, Jacob, gave this well. He's the one that dug it. He's the one that found it. He's the one that made it. And he drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle. And Jesus responds, I love this. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, I want to draw something very, uh, draw a distinction here that maybe we're not noticing. Jesus has not worked a sign in Samaria at this point. He has done no miracle. He has healed no bodies, right? There are no blind that now can see, no lepers that now are healed. Jesus Christ is simply speaking to this woman and he is directly addressing her heart. It starts with the heart. He is going to her innermost desires, right? This is what she's, she's here at noon alone, Women didn't do that. So that should tell us that the women of the town were shunning her for some reason. And we'll discover that reason here shortly. But Jesus is responding. Okay, right here, there is this need. There is this ache. There is this longing. Here you are yet again at noon getting water to ensure that no one will be there. No one will mock you. No one will hate on you. And yet here is a man. Here is a man willing to treat you like a human person. And this is how she responds to him in verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, again, from Jew to sir, give me this water that I may not thirst or come here to draw. So here the woman is responding to whatever magical, miraculous, whatever thing that he is offering her. The water I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. For her, it was an escape hatch away from the shame and the guilt that she has felt every day walking past all the houses 
throughout the town of Syker in order to get to the well at the outskirts of the town in order to draw water. She had to go at the hottest part of the day. She had to go when it was worse for her, but better for everyone else because her suffering like that was better than her suffering their harsh words. And so, of course, this speaks right to her. Yeah, if you got something that I never need to drink water again, naturally, again, at the life of the senses, that's it. That's what she was doing. She would, she would absolutely ask for this. And so what happens? Jesus points out that this water isn't enough. It's not enough. This is what Fulton Sheen says. Here was his philosophy of life. All the human satisfactions of the cravings of the body and the soul have one defect. They do not satisfy forever. So as our Lord is speaking to this woman from his spiritual and divine depths, she is responding in the only knowledge that she has, carnal knowledge, sensual knowledge. And so what does Jesus do after she says, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw? Not, sir, forgive me my sins, which is the source of my shame. Not, sir, get rid of my guilt. Pay my debts that are too great for me to pay. No, just help me to avoid the consequences that I am suffering from an unmerciful people. So what does he say? Well, Jesus Christ knows that the only way to cure guilt is to attack sin, not the guilt. The only way to address the hangover is to not get drunk, right? So what our Lord is doing is what any good doctor does. He seeks to cure the patient, not by treating the symptoms, but by going after the cause, the disease itself. And so he changes the tone of the conversation somewhat dramatically. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And she responds. She answered him, I have no husband. See, this is so fascinating to me because as a modern reader, when I see this and I hear this, especially early on, I would always be like, yikes, yikes, Jesus, right? So you have this thing like, oh no, he, he's, he's not treating her like a human person. He's just treating her like a woman, right? He's dismissing her. He's not giving her her due, but that's not all what is happening. For Jesus needs no one to testify to man. For Jesus knows what is in man. Jesus knows this woman's heart. He's the word. And so he knows her past, her history, everything that she's ever done. And so he is skipping through the conversation to address her heart. He starts with the carnal desire, her, her desire to no longer have shame and to be shunned by coming to this well day after day at the worst time of day. No, instead, Jesus is going to speak directly to the wound, directly to the conscience of the woman. But in order to be her savior, she needs to admit in her conscience the fault. And so here he goes, go call your husband and come here. I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. Another translation says, I love this, true enough. And it is true. What she said was absolutely true. It just wasn't the full truth. True enough, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and he whom you have now is not your husband. He who you have now is not your husband. Now, again, remember what I said about when the Assyrians took over the Samaritan town, when they took over all of Samaria, when they conquered all of the northern 10 tribes and scattered them to foreign nations. They repeopled them with five foreign peoples who brought their five gods. And now the Samaritans have this bizarre hybrid religion commingled with paganism. And within this context, right, 
they had the five bales that Hosea the prophet had said that God would remove from their mouths. And he said to them, you will no longer call me my Baal, but my husband. So Jesus says to her, you have had five husbands. So in this woman's personal history, he's reading into it the corporate history of the Samaritan people. And he whom you have now is not your husband. This you said truly. So who does she have now? Well, uh, you could see in one sense, and this is the way that Archbishop Fulton Sheen in his wonderful book, Life of Christ, which I've been pulling some of these thoughts from, that this woman is shacking up with a dude that she has now no longer bothered to marry. And those cultures, you pretty much married for life unless the husbands usually were the only ones with the legal authority to divorce. I think Roman aristocratic women could divorce men, but other than that, women had no authority to divorce. It was always the men. So this woman had been divorced by five men, and she's now living with a man and has not even bothered to get married to him. So that says one thing. And that culture, not that was unheard of, let alone frowned upon. So now you can kind of see that in her sexual history, why the, the respectable women of the town of Mount Gerizim, of Syker and Mount Gerizim, would despise this woman, shun this woman, view this woman potentially as a threat to their own marriages, their own husbands. But in a deeper sense that John weaves all the time throughout his gospel, John is subtly hinting at something that we caught at the very end of chapter three. John the Baptist says that it is the bridegroom who has the bride. He's the best man, but the bridegroom has the bride. So where is the next place that Jesus goes? To a well where the patriarchs have met their wives. He sends the 12 away because he has a date with a woman at a well. The bridegroom has come to his bride. And the one she is with now is actually Jesus. And he is not her husband. And that's why the prophet Hosea says, I will espouse you to me. This is him going after the gomers of Samaria, and even modern day gomers, right? These women who are of ill repute, hated by society, the lost and the forsaken, even by their own people. They're the ones that know they have this spiritual emptiness. They know that their lives are not on track, but they don't know how to be saved. They don't know how to be saved. And Jesus Christ said, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So the woman responds, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, do you understand what she just did there? He spoke directly to her heart, to her conscience. Let me put it that way. He spoke to her conscience. And like all people with a bad conscience, she changed the subject. Now, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I can tell you there are many times when I have done this. Rather than change, I'd rather enter into a theological debate. Rather than be confronted, I'd rather obfuscate. I'd rather change the subject. And that's exactly what she does. In fact, she refers back to where the conversation began. Who are you, a Jew, to ask a woman of Samaria, me, for a drink of water? So now she's saying, okay, well, uh, I perceive you're a prophet. So she has to acknowledge this, that he has some source of knowledge that she did not give him. And as a Jew, he wouldn't know the people of Syker and, and all the gossip that surrounds it. She knew that he was a traveler, wearied as he was by his journey. And so obviously he has to have, this is the closest thing you get to a sign, but it's prophecy. It's a sign of the word of knowledge. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And you say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So she changes the subject. 
Now listen to how Jesus, in answering her objection or her obfuscation, actually brings it back to the heart of the matter. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. The hour. And John's gospel always refers to his crucifixion. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such the Father seeks to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, why was this such a powerful answer to her? Well, in the words of the great venerable Fulton J. Sheen, he said this. He was telling her that the little local disputes would vanish very soon. The controversy between Jerusalem and Samaria would be superseded. For as Simeon had foretold, he would be a light to the Gentiles. Our Lord, however, did vindicate the Jews by saying that salvation, after all, is to come from the Jews. Indeed, the Messiah, the Son of God and Savior, would rise from them and not from the Samaritans. Salvation is the equivalent of a Savior. For Simeon, while beholding the babe, had declared his eyes had seen the salvation. Israel was the channel through which the salvation of God would be conveyed to the world. It was the tree which had been watered for centuries and now which brought forth the consummate flower, the Messiah and Savior. So now Jesus is taking her into the deepest waters of the New Testament. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will show us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So she goes from Jew to man to sir to prophet to the Christ. This is incredible. This movement in 26 verses has revealed to this woman through faith and through the word who Jesus Christ actually is, that he is the savior, the Messiah, the Christ, that he is a prophet, that he's more than just a Jew or a man or sir. But there is something supernatural that is convicting this woman. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. Now listen to how she defines it. When he comes, he will show us all things. So for her, it was precisely her own sins revealed to her that Jesus revealed his messianic credentials. And this is so true if we worship the Messiah. This is so true if we worship the God who will be crucified in Jerusalem, just outside the city walls, because he's a savior of our sins, right? Saves us from our sins and the consequences thereof. So she sees in her sins the divinity of Christ and the mission of Christ, what he will do in his humanity, because he's the savior. He's not just the master. He's not just the boss man. He's not just the king. His kingship is to save sinners. And she sees in him, she sees in him the very one who has met these messianic credentials. You're not just the prophet. You're the savior. And Jesus in verse 26 says, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. How often do you think Jesus completely and openly admits that he is the Messiah in John's gospel. Twice, twice here to the Samaritan woman. And then when he is confronted under oath by the high priest Caiaphas twice, I who speak to you am he. 
Now, you got to love this. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but none said, what do you wish? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the city. So she leaves her water jar, meaning she's leaving her past life. She's leaving the realm of sensuality of the senses. She's leaving her original desires because now she has new desires and her new desires is the exact opposite of what her old desires were. Think about it. At noon, she went to the well to avoid the people of the town. Now at noon, Filled with the gospel, the word of God spoken to her heart. She goes into the city. She leaves her water jar, the whole purpose for her going there in the first place, and said to the men of the town, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples besought him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said, I have food of which you do not know. So the disciples said, has anyone brought him food? Jesus, probably with an eye roll, said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are four months and then the harvest? I tell you, lift up your eyes and see how the fields are already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Okay, so now let's look at this. Despised woman encounters Christ and goes on a journey from Jew to man to sir to prophet to the Christ. And then she becomes a woman who is an outcast to a woman who encounters Christ to now the first door-to-door missionary. And she goes home into the very place where she was shunned and they come to Christ and they believe in him because of her testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. So now not only is he passing through Samaria, he is staying in Samaria for two full days and many more verse 41 believed because of his word. They said to the woman, so the townsfolk Say to this woman, it is no longer because of your words that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world, the savior of the world, not just salvation from the Jews, because these Gentiles outside people cut off from the covenant, these people who have hoard themselves out by all of these false gods, playing the prostitute, playing the harlot with all these false gods, chopping up the Old Testament to something that suits them and their hybrid religion. Here, Christ comes to save even these people. And he worked no miracle, save the miracle of his prophecy to her of her life. One of my favorite understandings of this passage is that this woman was hiding her past, her history. The reason why she was shunned by the Samaritans, she was hiding it from Jesus because here was a man who was treating her like a human person when no other man really did that. The men in the town didn't. The man that she was shacking up with wasn't. Her five husbands had all left her. So here was a man that as long as she hides her shame, then she can have this one moment at the watering hole, at the well of respect and a little bit of dignity. But Christ reveals, when he asks her that question, he reveals to her that he's known the truth about her the whole time, which means the woman's like, oh no, I've been found out. But wait a second, that means he's known this whole time, yet he still treats me with dignity. He still loves me. 
And brothers and sisters, this is the important thing for us as disciples, right? Jesus had an appointment to keep. Jesus had a divine appointment with this woman. He had to preach the gospel to her so that she could receive within her own heart this living water, the spring of water welling up to eternal life. But he also had to do surgery because there's too much blockage in her heart for this spring of water to be unleashed. And the same is true for all of us. We do not become good Christians by pretending like we have no sins. We become good Christians, as St. Francis de Sales says, precisely by fighting our imperfections, not in pretending like we don't have any imperfections. The way of perfection is by battling our imperfections. The only way, brothers and sisters, that we can ever conquer that tyrant of the past is through forgiveness and repentance. Forgiveness refuses to allow my wounds to continue to define me, and repentance refuses to allow the wounds that I've committed to others or to myself or under the Lord to actually define and limit me as well. Repentance. I'm sorry. This is what I've done wrong. I can own it and I can give it to the Lord who wants to take it from me. I forgive you. I'm no longer going to be held bound by my past, by what you've done to me in my past. Mercy is not permission to hurt me. Mercy is saying what hurt I've endured, I refuse to allow any more purchase in my life. I am free because Christ has set me free. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll wrap up this episode of studying the Samaritan woman at the well and its implications for us. Hi, my name is Father Mike Schmitz. I am the host of the Catechism in a Year podcast. If you've been following along with us, you know that God's plan for us is a plan of sheer goodness, that he wants to bring us into a relationship with him. You know that already. One of the ways that God actually brings us into this relationship and keeps us, sustains us in this relationship is through the sacraments. Again, you might know that already. You might further know that so many of us miss out on the beauty and the power of the sacraments. But Ascension has an answer to this. Ascension has created two new programs. One is called Renewed your journey towards first reconciliation. The second is received, your journey towards first Holy Communion. We know that our youth, they're our future. And yet at the same time, it's so hard oftentimes to reach them with this incredible news of God's love for them in reconciliation, God's love for them in the Eucharist. If you wanna check out Ascension's new program, Renewed, your journey towards first reconciliation, and Received, your journey towards first communion, go to ascensionpress.com and sign up for a free preview. And we are back. Just want to do a quick reminder, because this is a seasonal show, we want to keep you abreast of when we're doing episodes and when new seasons start and when interviews start. And we do a lot of batch recording. Right now, I'm doing one a week. But my goal is ultimately to sit down and get a bunch of interviews and all this stuff together on one day, line them all up. So because content is kind of unfolding throughout the year, you want to be a part of our email list. We don't spam you. It's a great email list to be a part of. So just text EKSB to 33777. That's EKSB to 33777, and you'll hop on that email list. So chapter four ends with something fascinating. After two days, he departed to Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now, this is how it goes. He came into Cana in Galilee, where he made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when he had heard 
that Jesus had come from Galilee, from Judea to Galilee. He went and begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus therefore said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Remember last week's show, we talked about how Jesus said how constrained he was in his mission. He talks about how he wish, uh, he says in Luke 12, 50, and how I am constrained until this mission is accomplished. He said, I begged your disciples to cast out these demons and he said, oh, perverse generation. How long am I to be with you and to bear with you? And he says this and talking about his own disciples, not like, you know, the Pharisees. So here he is. He's wearied, wearied, not of his ministry, but in his ministry. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. So you hear this. Yes, he worked a miracle, but this miracle was different from other miracles. It wasn't a sign that was demonstrated right in front of his face, but it rather was the power of the word. So an entire community of Samaritans becomes Christians, Christ followers, because they hear the word, the word of testimony. They hear the words of the gospel. They hear the kingdom preached by Jesus. And they believe because of his word. Whereas Nicodemus, one chapter earlier, who's a Pharisee and a ruler of the people, he, at the end, was not convinced. He comes by cover of night. He needs an argument. He has this conversation. He's half convinced. Now, later on, he would probably be fully convinced. But even still, the signs are not enough. The word is what you must believe in. The word is what changes us. And so for our meditation here, as we just pass out of Holy Week and we're into the Easter octave and we're going into the Easter season, the greatest season of the church's history, right, of the church's liturgical life and liturgical calendar, we need to understand that our testimony combined with the word of God, the words that Jesus actually said and did, this is what gives us life. This is what becomes the impulse of our missionary zeal. As disciples, we feast upon the word of Jesus. There was no miracle, no physical healing or opening of blind eyes. Contrast what happened in Samaria with the Pharisees who think they are sinless and so they don't need a savior. You and I have testimonies to give, no matter how sensational or not. We have testimonies to give because we know that we are in need of a savior. The Pharisees cannot be healed because they refuse to acknowledge they even have the disease. How can the starving man be fed if he won't even acknowledge that he's in a country of famine? So this is the problem that Jesus is constantly wrestling with. That's why after greed, he attacks foolishness. And the Pharisee who thinks he can look up to the heavens and say basically to God, how lucky you are that you have me as a, fair, as a follower, for I as a Pharisee am not like this tax collector. And what did the tax collector do? He just kept his eyes low, beating his breast, saying, have mercy on me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. When you add all of these things up, when Jesus says it's people like that that go home justified, it's only those who know in their bones they are lost, that they can be saved, that they can be found. And so for us, Doing this discipleship of Jesus Christ and helping to lead others into discipleship, we should not be afraid to bring up sins, to talk about the desires of the human heart. Because here's the deal. Sinners will not understand. People who are dominated by the carnal and the sensual and the sensitive appetites, they will not understand spiritual things. They will not, and they do not. Our testimony from the sensual to the spiritual 
right? From the selfish to the Christological. That is what brings people to faith in Christ Jesus. See, we keep thinking it's the cleverness of our words, but it's the demonstration of our love that we are willing to admit all that I've ever done because he healed all that I've ever done. He forgave and he had mercy for all that I've ever done. The power in your testimony is ultimately Christ at the center. We go through these things where we're listing our sins and talking about our wanton debauchery in our previous years before conversion, right? The emphasis must always fall upon Christ and his saving work because otherwise, how do people know that he's savior? He might be Lord and Lord alone to them, but he needs also to be savior and they need to believe because of his word. This is what Jesus does because this is who Jesus is. He's the seeker and savior of the lost. After all, look at me.